Patrick. Guys, thankful for our praise team on Sunday mornings. I tell you, there's healing power in music. There's healing power in music that's full of Jesus. And uh, we're so thankful for those that give their time and efforts to bless us each Sunday morning with that. It was 2003, just shortly after Kayla's first birthday, when my wife Christine took a pregnancy test. And she told me the news late in the day. We were going to have another bouncing baby. And we were super excited. She called the OBGYN's office and scheduled an appointment. And so uh, we went for a checkup at the OBGYN, and they took the ultrasound. And it was just so amazing at that point. The little baby is probably five or six weeks old. And it's just amazing to see that little life being formed in my wife's womb. And we were super excited, began making plans. And a few weeks later, we went back for a follow-up ultrasound. And my eyes aren't trained for these types of things. But even as a novice, I noticed something a little bit odd in that ultrasound. I noticed that the baby really hadn't grown any in those last several weeks since we had been in that office before. So a few minutes later, we were called into the doctor's office, and he shared the news, your baby didn't make it. And we began to doubt what he was saying and asked for further tests. And so over the next week or so, further tests were taken, and they all revealed the same thing. Despite our prayers that God would work a miracle, despite our prayers that God would do something that would just confound the OBGYN and and just knock his socks off, despite all of that, we went back test after test, revealed the same thing. My wife was in the midst of a miscarriage. And I remember as we went through that time, having a lot of doubts and concerns and worries, and one of the things that I remember thinking back there in 2003 was, I wonder if we'll never be able to have another child. I think, I feel that we'll never be able to have another child. Well, most of you know what happened in the nine years after that. I thought at the time, I was convinced at the time we'd never have another child, but within a few short years, Haley and then Grace and then Kara all proved me wrong. But I can't help but think back there in the moment in 2003, God gave me a small taste of what Zachariah and Elizabeth must have been feeling back there in Luke chapter 1. I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 as we continue our new message series, a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through the gospel according to Luke. And as we saw last week, This great book was written by Dr. Luke, who wrote this gospel account to offer an accurate and detailed account of Jesus' life and his teaching and his death and his resurrection. And Luke places a special emphasis on Jesus as the loving Savior of all people everywhere. All those who are lost, Jesus came to find. Luke reveals in his gospel account that Jesus Christ didn't simply come to save the Jews, but to save non-Jews as well. How many of you Gentiles are thankful for that? Okay, Just about all of us in this room, just about all of us don't have a Jewish heritage. So I don't know about you, but I am thankful that he came for Gentiles too. Jesus didn't simply come to save men. He came to save women and children as well. 
And he didn't come to save only the rich and the famous. Aren't you thankful that he came to save those who are poor, those who are living paycheck to paycheck, those who are nobodies in society? He is an equal opportunity savior for all men, women, and children. Long story short, the book of Luke reveals that no matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done, Jesus Christ came to save you. Isn't that good news? As Jesus told the crowd at Zacchaeus' house in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost, and this includes you and me. Well, let's pick up in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1 this morning, where we left off last week. I encourage you to pull out those message notes from your bulletin along with a, a pen or pencil to fill in some blanks and jot down some notes along the way. Uh, each week we provide those handouts. It takes some time to put those together, but we want to invest that time in those because we think it's valuable for you as we hide God's Word upon our hearts each week. One of the points of feedback we get consistently here at First Christian Church is that the messages on Sunday morning feed us. And so that is music to my ears. And so we want to put in the time and the effort every week to make sure these messages are nurturing to you in your walk with Christ. And those handouts are part of that nurturing. I encourage you to have those handy as we dive into this message today. Before Jesus was born, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, was born. And here in Luke chapter 1, Dr. Luke is going to tell us how John the Baptist came onto the scene. And so would you join me in a word of prayer before we dive into that first verse. Lord, we thank you for the privilege and the honor of studying your word here today. Lord, you are good to us. You are faithful to us. And Lord, we freely admit that sometimes we don't understand your ways, but you told us right in your word that your ways are higher than our ways. So we shouldn't be surprised that your ways surprise us at times. And Lord, sometimes your thoughts, we can't quite wrap our minds around, but you said in your word already that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Lord, sometimes we don't understand your timing, but your word makes it clear that your timing is perfect. And so, Lord, we believe in your wisdom, in your power, in your grace, in your love that you had in mind for each of us to be here today at this moment in time to receive this word. And so here we are, Lord, we're open we're available. We're ready for you to teach us. For those of us in this room, Lord, we're ready for you to teach us. And for those, Lord, watching uh, through Facebook Live, Lord, we're ready for you to teach each of us as well. Father, just speak to us through your word and all God's people said. Amen. You ready to dive in? Here we are. Oh, I don't know if I was convinced by that answer. You ready to dive in? Oh, that's better. Oh, that, we're going to have church today, folks, huh? All right, the congregation is in the house. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. One more amen if you're there. All right, here we go, starting in verse 5. In the... I got some cheaters a few weeks ago, and I'm holding off wearing those on a Sunday morning because I don't like wearing glasses. And so sometimes I look down and I say to myself, "Uh uh-oh, I can't quite read this print. But uh, just give me a moment. My eyes adjust. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children. 
because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man. My wife is well along in years. That was probably a little bit of a wise statement. At least he didn't say, I'm well along in years and I'm married to an old woman. You know, that wouldn't have been very good says, how can this be? I I am an old man. My wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs uh, to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor. And taken away my disgrace among the people. May God bless us as we study his word today. There are three main human characters that Luke spotlights here in Luke chapter 1. There's Zechariah, there's Mary, and there's Elizabeth. And here in this chapter, God will share some good news with each of them. With Zechariah, he's going to share some good news. With Mary, he will share some different good news. And then finally to Elizabeth, some good news. And we're going to find as we look at this chapter today and next week that each of these individual human characters shared in Luke chapter 1 respond to God's good news in a different way. Today we'll look at the first two of those, the reactions of Zechariah and Mary as they're shared, uh, as God shares with them some good news through his holy angel, Gabriel. And so we're going to start with Zechariah today, the first blank on your handout. Zechariah's reaction here early in Luke chapter 1 is a reaction of unbelief. He responds to the good news the angel Gabriel brings him with unbelief. He responds with unbelief. Here in verse 5 of Luke 1, Dr. Luke mentions that King Herod was king of Judea at the time. Now, historians usually refer to him as Herod the Great. 
But uh, in actuality, I think he was more like Herod the not-so-great. Herod was a mastermind of building projects. We know historically he built some of the most uh, awe-inspiring structures in all of ancient Israel. You know, he built this humongous temple. Uh, it was the third of the temples built there in Jerusalem. He, he built the third of these, and, and it was just massive. It was a, a huge undertaking. He built himself a palace uh, there in Israel that was just massive, and it was a, a huge undertaking. And so, and on one hand, he was a bit of a genius. On the other hand, the guy was a maniac. He was a madman. Uh, for instance, you may not know this, King Herod murdered his mother-in-law. Now, some of you married men may not think that's a big deal. But he didn't just marry his mother, uh, didn't, <laughs> excuse me, that would have been bad too. He didn't just murder his mother-in-law, he also murdered two of his wives. King Herod also murdered three of his own sons, fearing that they were going to usurp his throne. So he kills his mother-in-law, he kills two of his wives, by the way, he had a total of about nine over the course of his lifetime, and killed two of those wives, kills three of his own sons, and most of us remember what happens according to Matthew in Matthew chapter 2 when the Magi are coming to worship the Christ child. They say, hey, King Herod, where is the one born king of the Jews? He himself bore the title king of the Jews, and whenever he found out that someone else was starting to get uppity and thinking they might be king of the Jews, his tendency was to murder them. And so when the Magi didn't come back, according to Matthew chapter 2, he issues this decree that every baby boy in and around Bethlehem, two years of age or younger, must be immediately put to death. This guy was a maniac. He was a madman. And, and so Luke wants us to understand the backdrop of what's taking place when the angel Gabriel has that wonderful little talk with Zechariah there in the temple. In verses 5 through 7, Dr. Luke introduces us to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, and he tells us some important things about them. He tells us, for starters, that Zechariah was a priest. If you go back and look at the Old Testament law about the priests in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, uh, you'll discover that every male descendant of the high priest Aaron, who was Moses' brother, every male descendant of Aaron was automatically a priest in Israel. It wasn't something you had to go to school for to become. You basically were born into it. If you were a direct male descendant of Aaron, you were a, high, you were a priest there in Israel. And so Zechariah was a direct male descendant of Aaron, so he was a priest in Israel. And every Jewish priest, by law, could only marry a woman who was 100% Jewish. They didn't want any mixed racial blood uh, in the line of the priesthood. And so you had to marry a 100% Jewish woman. And the priests were encouraged not only to marry a Jewish woman, but to marry a woman who was also in the line of Aaron. And so notice what it reveals here in the early verses of Luke chapter 1. Not only was Zechariah a direct descendant of the high priest Aaron, his wife Elizabeth was also a direct descendant of Aaron. So this was Elizabeth. She was, according to God's word here, a woman with her husband that followed God well, that obeyed the laws to a T. They were, in the eyes of those around them, righteous before God. Now, Luke tells us that Zechariah belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. If you go back once again to 1 Chronicles 24, you'll find that there were 24 different divisions of the priesthood. 
24 different divisions. And so these you can think of as 24 teams. And so which of these 24 teams of priests was Abijah, was uh, uh, Zechariah on? He was on the Abijah team, the, uh, the division of Abijah. So we've got this picture of, of Herod's temple. That gives you an idea of this, this huge, beautiful, ornate structure that King Herod had built. He claimed to be a Jew. He really wasn't a Jew, but he claimed to be one. And he spent much of his uh, time trying to convince the Jewish people that he was one of them. But they never accepted him as a legitimate ruler over them, even though he built them this glorious temple within which to worship God. Now, historians in, in uh, today and over the past 2,000 years have estimated that there were some 20,000 priests in Israel in Zechariah's day. So I'm going to throw a few numbers at you so you can wrap your mind around this situation and, and kind of appreciate what Luke is saying here. So if there were 20,000 priests... And there were 24 divisions of those 20,000 priests. That means, on average, each of these divisions had about 800 priests. And because there were these 20,000 priests in Israel, far too many to be serving at the temple at any given time, God had come up with this plan. These 24 divisions would each serve only two weeks each year. All of those 20,000 priests would come together in Jerusalem only three times. They'd come together for the three great festivals. They'd come together for the Feast of Passover. They'd come for the Feast of Pentecost. They'd come for the Feast of Tabernacles. But other than that, the priests stayed at home most of the year. And twice a year, for one week each time they came, they would come with their division and serve at the temple. And so imagine, here we have Zechariah coming with 799 other priests that were also a part of that division of Abijah coming to serve for one of his two weeks during the course of that year. Now it says here that lots were chosen for the duty that Zechariah was given. So when they went to the temple, even though they had divided these 20,000 priests into 24 groups, 800 priests is still a lot of priests serving in one place at one time. And so they came up with all these various duties that those 800 priests could be doing. Okay, we want you to do the burnt offering on this altar out here. Uh, We want you to sweep the back porch. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. All these duties they would divvy up among the 800. Now, they would draw lots for the favorite duty of all the priests. The favorite duty, the things that every priest wanted to do, would be to be given the opportunity to go into that holy temple, into that first room. Remember, it's called the holy place. Let's put it up on the screen here. This first room is called the holy place. It was on the near side of that purple curtain. And in that holy place, there were these three different pieces of furniture. There was the candelabra. We call it a menorah these days that was over on the left side against the left wall. Over on the right side of that first big room, the holy place, was the table of showbread. They would have two stacks of six unleavened bread pieces, a total of 12 pieces of bread symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. That would be over on the right side of that first room, the holy place. And then the third piece of furniture would be straight ahead up against that purple curtain, and that was the altar of incense. And so the favorite, most sought-after duty of any priest in those days was to be given the opportunity to go into the temple. They would do this twice a day, to go into the temple. They would trim the little wicks on the candles on that candelabra to the left. And then they would proceed to go in and they would light incense 
on top of some hot burning coals on that altar of incense. So imagine there he is up against this purple curtain. And just on the other side of that curtain would be the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. That's where they used to keep the, uh, the uh, Ten Commandments there in the Ark of the Covenant. That's where the Shekinah glory of God would reside in Old Testament times. And so you were just inches away from where the Holy Spirit of God would be residing there in the temple. And so what an honor to be able to light incense and to pray on behalf of the people there. And so they would draw lots because every priest wanted to do this. And as you can imagine, if you were just going uh, two weeks out of the year and this job was only carried out twice a day, whenever those lots were drawn to see which priest would get to do it at that particular time on that particular day, you had at best a one in 400 chance of getting to do it. And so when Luke writes that, that the lot was chosen by Zechariah, you better believe that he was jumping up and down. He had a 1 in 400 chance of getting chosen, and he, chose, he was chosen. Some priests never in their lifetime were given an opportunity to light this incense. But he was chosen. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah And he must have been beside himself. He was thrilled to have been given this honor. And as he passed through the front door of the temple, he would have been carrying two things. In one hand, he would have been carrying those hot coals taken from that altar outside the temple where they had burnt the burnt offering sacrifice. And in the other hand, he would have had that little vial with the incense in it. He would put down the hot coals And over the hot coals, he would pour that incense when it was time to do that. It was an amazing thing. He stepped into the temple. This likely was his first time to ever step inside that holy temple. And he must have had to adjust his eyes because there was just the light of the candelabra and maybe a little outside light coming in, but it was probably darker than he imagined. And so his eyes probably had to adjust. And as he made his way to the candelabra to trim those wicks, uh, he must have made sure that he did that carefully. And then as he proceeded over to that altar of incense and put down those hot coals on top of that altar and then carefully poured that incense over those hot coals and began to see the smoke begin to rise and began to smell the aroma of that incense, he must have been completely taken aback when he glances to his right. And there he sees... An angel. He must have been scared to death. And that's, in fact, what we do seem to read here. Because Zechariah, the first thing the angel says to him is what? Do not be afraid. In verse 12, it says Zechariah was startled and gripped with fear. That's the most common reaction someone in Scripture has to an angel's appearance. You find it almost every single time when an angel appears, the first human reaction is absolute terror. And so, so often the angel will say, do not be afraid. Before I share with you the message I came to share with you, first of all, do not be afraid. And beginning in verse 13, Gabriel explains to Zechariah that his prayer had been heard. Now, what prayer was that? It seems pretty clear that the prayer that Gabriel is referring to was the prayer that Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed probably for decades, every day for decades, God, would you give us a child? God, would you give us a child? That seems to be the prayer that Gabriel is referring to. 
And Gabriel explains to Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth would give birth to a son and they were to name him John. And that name John means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. Isn't that true? Isn't God gracious to us? Gabriel tells Zechariah that John will be a source of joy for his family and for many people in Israel. He will be great in God's sight. He is to abstain from wine. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Throughout Old Testament times, whenever someone was filled with the Holy Spirit, it was temporary. And so John the Baptist would be special. It wouldn't be a temporary thing where the Holy Spirit comes upon a priest or temporarily comes upon a prophet or temporarily comes upon a king or some other servant of God. This would be a permanent thing foreshadowing what Jesus Christ would make available to you and me as Christians would have the constant indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Aren't you thankful that the Holy Spirit doesn't just come and go from a Christian? When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, when we trust in Him as Lord and Savior, repent of our sins and obey Him in Christian baptism, as we give our lives to Jesus Christ, it says the Holy Spirit will come in and reside and dwell with us. But in those days, this was extremely unusual. John would have the Holy Spirit upon him, even, it would seem, inside his mother's womb. So Yahweh is gracious, is promised by the angel. Now, what an amazing message for this old priest to receive. Zechariah is visited by one of God's most famous angels. There are only three angels mentioned by name in Scripture. The archangel Michael, Lucifer, who became Satan, and then Gabriel. He's one of only three angels mentioned in Scripture. And here, this old prophet, or this old priest, I should say, is visited by this great, prophet, by this great angel. And he's given this wonderful news. And how does he respond? You look at verse 18 again. Here's how he responds. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. This translates this way. Gabriel, I'm not so sure I believe you. You'll need to prove it to me, otherwise I'm not buying it. His question seems simple enough, but it seems clear from Gabriel's reaction that that was basically what Zechariah was saying. I don't buy what you're telling me. You're going to have to prove it. Not a great response to a, an angelic visit, wouldn't you say? Look at verses 19 and 20. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I, I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and unable to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. Since Zechariah's response was a response of unbelief, God chose to discipline him by temporarily taking away his ability to speak. And as we read the account of Zechariah trying to motion to the priests outside of the temple a door, and as he goes back home and for nine months he's unable to speak and he's writing on tablets and whatnot, it seems that not only did God take away his ability to speak, God may have also taken away his ability to hear. God has hampered his ability to communicate as a discipline for not believing God's word. Hmm. How old were Zachariah and Elizabeth 
when this angel came to visit. My best guess, reading this text many times, is that they were probably in their 60s. They're probably in their 60s, and I imagine they had probably been married early on, probably married by their 20s, and you can imagine during their 20s they had prayed every day, God, would you give us a child? As they got into their 30s, they thought to themselves, it's still not too late, God, would you give us a child? They got into their 40s, and they said, you know, it's a little late to be having kids, but it's it's certainly still possible. In their 40s, they they continued praying, God, give us a child. We're running out of time here. Give us a child. Give us a child. I imagine that they had prayed this prayer every day for decades, and as they got into their 50s, they began to stop praying. And now they were in their 60s, and my guess is it had been a very long time since Zachariah and Elizabeth had prayed this prayer. But God's timing is not our timing, is it? Gabriel was able to tell Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. He probably had to scratch his head. What prayer was that? I haven't prayed that in years. But no, your prayer has been heard. Zechariah, in essence, the angel says, Zechariah, do you remember that prayer you and your wife used to pray every night before bed? That prayer that you would have a child. Do you remember that prayer? You assume that God's answer was no. But God's answer was actually yes, but not yet. Yes, but not yet. Zechariah, guess what? Today is your day. God's answer is yes, and now is the time. Isn't that great news, Zechariah? And Zechariah basically says, I don't buy it. You're going to have to give me a little bit more proof here, angel boy. How'd you get into this temple? You sneak in through a back door? I didn't even know there was a back door. But I'm not buying it. It was great news. Think about it. What great news he's given, and Zechariah didn't believe it. He, He was surrounded by the blessings of God. This was the most important day of his life. For years he had dreamed that the lot would be chosen and he would be given the opportunity to go light the incense. He dreamed of this for years. It was a priest's highest honor. And finally on this day, he was given that honor. He among all of the priests in his division and among all the 20,000 priests in Israel at that time, he alone was given a wonderful visit by one of God's most important angels, Gabriel, on this same day that he's given the honor of lighting the incense. And not only is he visited by one of God's greatest angels, that angel tells him his prayer has been answered and his wife will give birth to the one who has been promised, who will go in the spirit of Elijah to pave the way for the Messiah that all of Israel had been praying for for centuries. This was the best of the best days in Zechariah's life. And he responded with unbelief. And God didn't care for that too much, did he? In Hebrews 11.6, we're told, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Those that earnestly seek God, those who diligently seek God and believe that he exists and believes that he rewards his followers, that is entry-level stuff when it comes to following God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So from God's perspective, 
when he gives one of his faithful followers really good news about an answer to prayer, there is no excuse for unbelief. So Luke spends a good chunk of his chapter, chapter 1, talking about Zechariah's reaction to that good news that his wife would give birth to John the Baptist. His reaction was a reaction of unbelief. Next, he turns in verse 26 and following to our second main human character in, the, in Luke chapter 1, and that's Mary. Mary's response, her reaction is much different than Zechariah's. Mary responds to God's news with faith. She responds with faith. Let's take a look, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God dispatched the angel Gabriel to deliver another very important message. But this time the angel Gabriel wasn't dispatched to go into the temple in Jerusalem. This time the angel Gabriel was dispatched to a podunk little village in the northern part of Israel called Nazareth. And in this little mountainous village of Nazareth with only a few hundred residents... Gabriel is sent to this young teenage girl named Mary. And that angel delivers a message to her that was even greater and more important than the message he had delivered nine months earlier, probably six months earlier, to Zechariah there in the temple. And so the angel Gabriel appears. We're not told what Mary was doing at the time. My guess is she was going on about her business. Maybe she was doing some laundry. Uh, Maybe she was cooking dinner. Maybe she was just going on a stroll around the village through the trees and through the woods. Whatever she was doing, she's minding her own business, doing her thing. And all of a sudden, the angel Gabriel appears and says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And she must have done a double take looking behind her to see if there was someone behind her she didn't recognize was there because certainly this angel couldn't be talking to her. Her initial emotional reaction is much the same as Zachariah's. She is scared, right? And so what does the angel say to her? Do not be afraid. Says Mary, verse 29, was greatly troubled at his words. And wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So Gabriel responds, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. 
angel proceeds to tell Mary that she would give birth to a son who she needed to name Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. It's really the same name as Joshua. Uh, They're just in two different languages. Jesus derives more from the Greek, Joshua more from the Hebrew. Same name. Jesus means Yahweh saves. This special son would be called the Son of the Most High. He would reign over Israel and his kingdom would never end. And understandably, young Mary was blown away. At, at first glance, her response to the angel seems pretty much like Zachariah's response to the angel. Remember what Zachariah said? Remember what he said? How can this be? Or I don't believe you? Let me make sure I get the exact words here. He said, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Mary's reaction seems rather similar. How will this be since I am a virgin? But it's clear from how the angel responds to Mary that her question was much different and came from a much different place in her heart than Zachariah's question six months earlier. Although Mary's response to Gabriel sounds similar to Zechariah's response, it was actually really different. Zechariah said, how can I be sure of this? In other words, I don't really believe you. But Mary said, how will this be? I want to suggest to you there's a big difference between can and will. Would you agree? Big difference between can and will. Mary wasn't saying, I don't believe you. You've got to give me some proof. She was saying, I believe you. But you, could you do me the favor of explaining to me how you're going to do it? Because I'm a virgin. I believe you, but could you fill me in with a few more details? And so what does that angel do? He obliges Mary's question. Sure, I'll share a few more details. And he talks about how the Holy Spirit would come upon her, how the spirit of the highest God would overshadow her. And so it would be a true statement that the child she would give birth to would be called the Son of the Most High. In verses 5 through 7, Dr. Luke introduced us to... Oops, I got lost in my notes here. And so her reaction is a reaction of faith, unlike Zacharias, which was a reaction of unbelief. Notice verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Wow! Gabriel even gave Mary something she didn't ask for. A a little extra little tidbit that most people didn't know about. You've got a relative named Elizabeth. And right now, she is five months pregnant. Right now, she is already more than halfway through her pregnancy. And she, in her old age, is going to give birth to a very special child. And so Mary is given that little 411 by Gabriel as an added little point of evidence that what he was relaying to Mary was, in fact, God's truth. And then verse 37, the, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel ends the conversation with these final words, For nothing is impossible with God. That's a great way to end a conversation, isn't it? Why don't you say it with me? For nothing is impossible with God. One more time. For nothing is impossible with God. Tell the person next to you, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary says one last thing. Her last words to the angel are as follows. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. 
Over the past 2,000 years, Christians have experienced a whole lot of confusion about Mary. The Roman Catholic Church has made her out to be some sort of co-savior with Christ. They have taught that she, like Jesus, was born from an immaculate conception. Like Christ, she experienced perpetual virginity. And like Christ, she somehow ascended into heaven. All of that is a bunch of unbiblical hogwash. But these legends have surrounded Mary, and because of that, the typical Protestant reaction has been to swing the pendulum to the opposite side and ignore Mary entirely. And so what should we do? Should we follow the lead of the Roman Catholic Church and lift her up to be some sort of co-savior super saint? Or should we ignore her completely? Well, the answer is right here in God's Word. We should honor her. We should respect her because... She was chosen by God, not because she was superhuman, but because she was a woman of great faith. It's there on your handout, and I'll put it on the screen for you too. Mary was chosen by God, not because she was a superhuman saint, but because she had faith. Mary was a humble servant who trusted God enough to believe his word and obey it faithfully. Lord willing, we'll talk about that a little bit more next week as we dive into the second half of chapter 1. But in the meantime, know that Mary should be talked about. She should be respected. She should be honored. But there's no one superhuman, simply as a servant chosen by God. I want to give you three life lessons in closing. Lesson number one that we can pull from this first half of Luke chapter 1. Lesson number one, our impossibilities set the stage for God to do his best work. Isn't that true? Our impossibilities set the stage for God to do His best work. A 60-some-year-old woman can't have a baby, especially if she's been barren her entire adult life. It can't happen. A teenage girl who is a virgin cannot be pregnant. It can't happen. But somewhere along the way, God didn't get the message. He didn't get the memo that certain things are impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. Lesson number two. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. This is so important. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. Those of you who were here last week or or caught the message after the fact know that I shared with you what was going on with my dad after his stroke. My dad had a stroke two and a half weeks ago, and last Sunday I came to you thanking you for your prayers, and I asked you to pray last Sunday a very specific prayer. On Monday, the doctors intended to put a feeding tube in my dad because he wasn't able to swallow properly and swallow safely. And so I asked you to be praying for that. And I thank you because I know many of you began praying that last Sunday. And so Monday morning, I was on the road. I was on Pear Blossom Highway in that stretch between between Victorville and and, uh, Palmdale. And I got on the phone with my mom. And uh, fortunately, the CHP didn't see me doing this. But anyway, I was on the phone with my mom, and I was getting an update. And she said, the doctor came in yesterday, and they're planning on wheeling Dad out at 11 a.m. this morning to put in the feeding tube. And so there I am thinking, I just asked the church 24 hours ago to be praying for my dad. And she was sharing the details, and I said, Mom, I think I would resist this. You know, I don't think that speech therapist has been in to evaluate him in the last 48 hours. You need to talk to the nurse ASAP 
and demand that that speech therapist comes in for one final evaluation. And she talked to me later in the day and said, you know what, I'd been thinking the same thing. And, Dane, when you shared that with me, it confirmed what I'd been thinking. So she gets on the horn with the nurse. Lo and behold, that speech therapist gets gets there within 45 minutes. She evaluates my dad, and on Monday morning she came to the conclusion that he's able to swallow safely, and they called off the surgery. So one of my initial reactions is, God, couldn't you have done this yesterday? You had a sweat and bullets for a while. You came in at the final hour, literally. But I'm here to tell you that even in the last week, God has proven to me once again that God's, how does it say up there? Delays are not necessarily God's denials. Sometimes God, you think, has said no to your prayer. And he hasn't said no. He said, yes, but wait. Yes, but not now. And he did that for my dad last week. And he'll do it for us oftentimes. We think at times his timing is not perfect, but his timing always is perfect. God's answer to you today may be yes, but wait. And so I encourage you, don't do like Zechariah did and give up on those prayers. You keep praying. And that answer may come yes before you know it. Final lesson, lesson number three. Faith is a decision, not a feeling. Faith is a decision, not a feeling. I imagine that when Gabriel delivered his messages to Zachariah and Mary, they both felt confused. They both felt overwhelmed. They both felt unprepared to handle what God had in store for them. But there was a big difference in how those two handled their feelings. This is so important, church. They had similar feelings, but Zechariah allowed his uncomfortable feelings to overrule his faith in God's goodness and God's power. But inside Mary's mind and heart, faith ruled. Faith ruled. She, like Zechariah, was confused. She was uneasy. She was scared. But Mary clung to her faith in God's goodness and power despite her swirling, confused feelings. I love how Chuck Swindoll says it. He writes Mary responded, may it be done to me according to your word. Notice that Mary didn't respond, may it be done to me because I have a peace about it. She made a conscious decision to accept her circumstances because she trusted in the character of God. She didn't wait for her conflicted emotions to settle down. She didn't ask how God could, would work out all the details before submitting to him. She didn't ask for time to think it over. She made a decision to trust in the Lord's power and goodness despite the inevitable hardship that lies ahead. Well said. Two very different responses to God's good news from two different servants of God. One allowed his feelings to rule his faith. The other made a decision that her faith would rule over her feelings. Mary made her feelings take a back seat to her unshakable faith in the character of God. So let me ask you, when God brings you good news, when he brings you good news, who will rule your response, your feelings or your faith? I hope that like Mary, you will make a decision to trust in the Lord's power and his goodness despite the hardship that lies ahead. Many of you know that when you choose the path of faith, times don't get easier. 
In many ways, they get harder. But will you choose to have faith in God and His goodness and power anyway? You put those prayers before Him, and you trust that God will answer them with a yes or a no. And if He chooses to answer with a yes, you trust that His timing in bringing about that tangible yes is perfect. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I thank God that He's provided Mary as a wonderful example of trusting the Lord even when we're confused, even when we're scared, even when we don't have all the answers to all the specifics of how He's going to on earth do what He said He was going to do. We say, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me just as you have said.